0: Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madam, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cyber security and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast and I'm your host Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Helen Rabe. Helen is an internationally experienced security professional who specialises in complex deliveries with a strong emphasis on security service management. Helen is currently the CISO at CBRE, previously holding the Director of Information Security role at Costa Coffee. Hope you enjoy it. Hello Helen, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: So let's start from the beginning. Where was you born?
1: I have what is considered an exotic past. I was born in Zimbabwe. Uh, What was then known as Rhodesia, so a long time ago. Um, I grew up for a few years in in Zimbabwe, but then uh, we moved to Namibia, where I spent most of my formative childhood, so I grew up in Namibia, and then moved over to South Africa. So, yes, a different background (laughs) from growing up. Saw my first television in 1981.
0: Amazing. And who are or were your parents?
1: My parents. So, I... Unfortunately, lost my father recently, but I have amazing parents. Uh, my mother now lives with me. I brought her over last year from South Africa, so she now lives with me. A forty-six-year-old woman living with her mother, but actually, it's lovely. You know, <laughs> I come home to home-cooked meals and my bed's made. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I, I do take advantage of that. Bless her. Um, I, I had very good parents, Pam and Paul, um, and I've been very blessed and very fortunate with that. I'm sure most people say that, but in my case, it's very true. Uh, my parents were very strong independent thinkers, and, and you know, I was brought up to be resourceful and resilient, and my upbringing in Namibia went a long way to that. Um, you know, we would spend most weekends out in the desert, um, either looking for gemstones or camping out under the stars, and it was a fantastic upbringing, very different. So you know, my parents taught me how to be self-sufficient and resilient from an early age.
0: What was your education like?
1: My education was, you know, it, it was interesting. I guess it was your traditional kindergarten, you know, primary school, high school. Um, mm. Nothing untoward in that. i just say it was the environment in which I had it that was very different. So my school was being erected around me when I was growing up in, in Um, It was a brand new school um, in the desert, pretty much. And, and you yeah, know, completely different environment to an urban society, much like here in London, Hmm. or even South Africa, where I went to um, primary school and then high school. But my first primary school, I I have very fond memories, there was nothing there, it was just sand dune, everywhere you looked, and rock, it was almost like a Martian landscape. But yeah, very different.
0: Did you go university? Was that your next step? I
1: was a mature student, so I came over from South Africa in 95 on a whim. Okay. Um, You know, now that sanctions were no longer in place, I thought I'm getting to the age where the the travel visa had an age restriction. And it was a case of if I don't get over there now and see what it's about, I probably never get the opportunity. So I did. I came over on a whim. It was extremely difficult and challenging. I underestimated so many things. Um, But it, it became very apparent to me very quickly that. If I wanted to stay here longer term, and I could, I had the opportunity through an ancestry visa through my grandmother who was British, Um, then basically, you know, in order for me to knock glass ceiling on a salary, I would need to study. So I did the mature student thing. I did my classes in correspondence. And back then, it wasn't online like it (laughs) is now. It was a little more manual. But yeah, I, I did a BSC and then an MBA. So, and that was done through... You know, a correspondence course with a university partnered over in the States. Um, You know, and it was small. It was affordable Mm -hmm. for me. It wasn't, unfortunately, an accredited MBA. But, you know, it taught me valuable insight. And it ensured that I just got the the tick box. And honestly, I I suppose it was more of a calculated material motive rather than an altruistic one with regards to education. It was just to ensure that going forward, I didn't hit any glass ceilings because I didn't have the academic qualifications behind me.
0: What was the degree in?
1: The degree was BSc Environmental Sciences, and my MBA, my elective, was in Project and Program Management. Yeah. And at the time, I was a program manager, so it made yes. sense. And I was fortunate enough at the time as well, I was consulting and contracting for 20th Century Fox. And they allowed me to use the, the project that I was working on as the, the outlier for my, um, my study.
0: When was the first time security came into your picture?
1: Security has always been in the background. So mm. so my career has been a traditional sort of progressive, linear path of business analysis, project management program, and then service delivery. So the full systems lifecycle, I've been a part of. Security was always there, and I've been at this a long time, and I'm not going to expand on that because that tells you how old I am, but <laughs> it, it's, it, it was always there. It was never at the forefront, though, you know, even w- when I was working, um, you know in the noughties in investment banking uh, and doing program management and service delivery it was be- it was being taken more seriously but its visibility was still never at the forefront of the deliverables that I was I was you know achieving and I was doing network connectivity projects and the like. So security was important mm. but the pulling it together, the having it there, a holistic view wasn't there. it was still very silent. So it's been there in the background. It's always been a tick box exercise for me, but it's always been a fascinating piece of activity. I always loved it. I always, I always gravitated towards it and wanted more of it. But the opportunities weren't there to expand further on it because honestly, it was just seen as a like, get it done, tick box, move on. Hmm. And, you know, that never sat well.
0: When was the first time you you knew or you wanted to be a leader in, in, a, in a particular space?
1: Well, it wasn't as magnanimous as that with regards mm. to thought pattern. It was more survival than yes. anything and quite calculating in this regard. Um, I turned 40 and realized that as I was getting older, there were a lot more people coming up the ranks and I was a generalist. I could no longer be a generalist. I needed to focus on a niche. I needed to do something more... and and drive my career in a singular direction because as you hit that milestone, and I don't know if this is the same for other people, but it's certainly the same for me, um, if you're going to do contracting in particular, you need to become an SME and focus your energies and become a player in that market, so to speak. So when I turned 40, I figured, right, figure out where you're going to go, what your long-term game is, and identify the niche area. And that was security because if it's one thing that became very apparent to me, and I'm sure many others, security was the future. Mm -hmm. Everything we do, will involve an element of security, and it was only going to become more and more of an involved piece of our life. You know, it was going to become a lifestyle cho- a choice at some point, I'm sure of it.
0: Talk to me about your your first days at Costa Coffee, when you were heading up the security team there. Mm-hmm. What was that like going into a, a retail where there were so many customers, so many different people to deal with on a daily basis?
1: It was fascinating and terrifying in equal measure. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I came from strongly regulated environments, structured environments. Yeah. You know, financial services is is clear with its regimens, with its security awareness, with its governance. It's very regimented and very controlled, and it has to be because it is. You know, a regulated environment. To the retail industry, which you know, people assume automatically there has to be a measure of compliance with the Data Protection Act as it stands. That is an assumption. And I was, I was completely taken aback by the fact that once again, security was just, oh, it's there. I'm, I'm sure we do it. I don't know what you're asking for though, Helen, you know, when you say this, what are you asking for? So the simple things that I thought were simple really were not for the retail environment. Retail environments, you know, everything is around the brand and it, with Costa, it is a fiercely guarded brand, you know, and for good reason. It has amazing people. I'm I'm not used to working with creative types. That was the other thing. I'd come from financial services with traders and number crunchers to creative individuals whose priorities were completely at odds with what I was trying to secure. (laughs) So I had to think differently about how I worked with my business. And this was the first time that I actually realized that security and business enablement were not just words. You had to be absolutely pragmatic in your approach to the business. Because if you didn't understand what they were trying to achieve, it was very quick, it was very easy to judge them for being completely ignorant of of security instead of understanding what they were trying to do and how they were trying to deliver it and the value add to the end user, the customer. Because that in retail is what it's all about, the consumer. Um, So for me, the first few days were, there was a lot of inward Perspective. It was about looking inward. Okay, I was was at odds with a number of people. Was I the problem or them? And -hmm. it's easy to just externalize and say, right, you guys are not getting this. This is really a problem with you. But it wasn't. It was about how I was communicating with my business. And you cannot operate in a retail environment the same way you do in a highly regulated environment. They don't work the same way. So I had to take a step back and start to learn about the business, learn about the people, figure out how the language that I was trying to convey would change. To accommodate and bring them on board, so it was bedlam the first few days. Um, and you know the teams as well, because they've worked in a non-regulated way. There, there is a, a very loose and fast approach to security. Retail is much better now. It has to be because there've been so many high-profile issues in that industry, mm. and they've had to pull themselves together and get better at how they manage security. The beauty of Costa was the receptivity. They were on board with it once they actually understood the message people came on board very quickly and loved the idea of building security into their solutions. If you can offer security within you know, the cost of application as a byproduct, we secure your data by design, we take it seriously, there's reassurance and comfort. And that, that continues the trust in the brand. Yes. And this is not the kind of language I used in mm. financial services. Now I speak about brand and I actually get it. But they live, eat, and sleep. They breathe the brand.
0: And that's the difference. How long would you say it took you to realize that when you were Jocosta? Costa?
1: Really, when it took me a good three weeks of yeah. realizing that we were at odds and I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting the adoption I needed. The challenge we had is we had it, I came on board off the back of a of a major issue, a major mm. incident. Um, and I was again speaking a language that the business was not getting. And that you know, you, you have to take a step back and realize that your part to play in this. If you're in security, And you are speaking to your business, you're part of the problem or part of the solution. It sounds trite, but it's in in retail more than any other industry I've worked in. You have to be able to speak their language. Mm. Otherwise, you will not get them on board. So it took me a good three weeks to realize that the language had to change.
0: Do you think it helped that they were just getting over an incident?
1: I think the focus on the incident helped people to understand that where they needed to be was a long way off from, you know, the reality of what good looks like. Yes. Um, I think it shocked them into a realization that what they had in place was never going to be sufficient. And it it did help focus the energy in the right direction.
0: Yes. Now you're a real estate firm. I am. How has that differed from from Costa?
1: So a similar culture paradigm. Um, It's not a traditionally regulated... So CBRE... Um, is, is the world's largest real estate and, and facilities management company. I mean, it is phenomenally large. Um, but it has recently taken on board a digital strategy. We have a chief digital technology officer. So historically, it's been about real estate, and it's been about brokers going out and selling. You know, it, it's, it's a very complicated business model, and I can't do it justice. But I can tell you this they're realizing that in order for them to reach a wider network of clients and to offer better services, they have to become more digitally innovative. Hmm. And that's a massive shift in the way in which they operate. In line with that, security has been part of that conversation. In order for us to offer these solutions to our clients, we need to ensure they're secure. And we will set the trend, we'll set the bar in our industry for this because we're not going to go to market with solutions that can't be trusted because for CBRE, trust is everything. So our chief digital technology officer is a a passionate advocate of security by design, and security and privacy by design. Um, And that message is being pushed out there across the business simply because as we move into digitally enabled applications and the like, security will be part of that life cycle. And from the outset, everybody needs to be on board. So the message is coming from the top and then also coming from the COs in the business that way as well. So I'd say compared to Costa, the margins are better here. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the the paradigm shift in culture and, and security awareness mm. is the same sort of challenge.
0: You took the word um, and the powerful word in trust
1: mm-hmm.
0: in a real estate firm who needs to trust you.
1: Our end customers, so the individuals who lease our businesses. Mm. Our, our, if I say business, I'm talking about, you know, the the buildings that we lease to them. Right? The end users who use our digital applications to build out floor plans for their proposed real estate. Um, we also have global investors, so we have an equities division, financial services. We have financial services customers. We host data centers for certain clients. We have multiple stakeholders in our businesses and multiple lines of business, each of those, these are long-term relationships. Real estate is not a five-minute relationship. These are long-term relationships based on trust. And they're becoming, particularly our financial services clients, and rightly so, are becoming more and more clear about their requirements with regards to the security that we provide to them as part of our solutions. And I'm getting far more face time with end customers than I've ever had before. And that's part of the reassurance. You know, it's part of CBRE's way of, of letting our customers know, we've heard you, we've taken this on board, here's our new CISO for EMEA, here's our new CISO for APAC and the US, we're front end. When it comes to speaking to our business, we're there to speak to them if they have you know, the need for security assurance and the like. It doesn't mean we overshare on the contents of our documents or our strategies, but we do provide reassurances with our you know, highly regulated customers that we're now on board with this and we have a strategy in place to build out our maturity.
0: And if you're talking to customers, would you say the wording that you maybe in the way you deliver that message is different to how you would do it internally?
1: It depends on the customer, but yes. I mean, you have to be, with customers, obviously, there's an element of, of being more guarded with the content of yeah. what you're, but you have to understand what your customers need is. you've you've got to be clear where are their concerns and you've got to hone in on that. You only have limited time with your customers and therefore you've got to be clear about what their concerns are and focus on that. So I tend to do some in advance of meeting them and I actually have one today where we're doing their annual review. We get the agenda pulled together way in advance so we're clear and we're focused. We have to address their concerns. The language that I use internally is it depends again on the need and the requirement, But you know the general consensus is there. Security is not going away. It's not something that just belongs to security. And again, you use, you know, these these words are often bandied about and sometimes they they do appear as tri-platitudes, but security is everybody's problem. What you have to do is expand on why that is. We can't, as industry experts in security, expect our business or our customers to understand what that means to them pragmatically. We have to be helpful and explain why that is.
0: So we've... 35,000 users mm-hmm. multiple stakeholders across so many different regions how would you go in in embedding uh, security operations the way
1: i'm doing it is is a multi-pronged approach yeah. right this is about getting out there and making security accessible so we're going to look at branding cbre cyber as mm-hmm. you know an internal function going across the regions requires First of all, communication. You can't do this without a communication stand. You have to identify who the key business players are. Do so you have your digital and technology? But then you also have your lines of business. You have to go out there. You have to communicate. Who is security? What is security? What do we do? You can't assume that your business understands what security is. It doesn't. You know, it it has, it has a, an idea and an understanding. But honestly, your business needs to understand what it is you own and what it is they own what you bring to the table and what is required of them. So the first part of being able to go out there and explain to the Amir organization what security is, is about explaining who I am and what I do for them. It's about being front and center. Security can't hide in the background. We have to be accessible to our business. That's a huge communication. It's a roadshow, and I've got those planned for the next three months. Mm. All right. So that's making myself and my team accessible. It's introducing the team, it's introducing the remit it's providing them with a basic overview of you know, the things that are impacting us at the moment. What are they? And I won't expand on them here because you know, this is publicly available. But it's about, first of all, understanding where the pain points are from a security standpoint in your business at the moment. Why does the business have a reluctance to engage with us? And then offering that availability. So one of the things that I do on the road shows is I talk less and I engage more. And what that means is, is I encourage people when I have my slides behind me, they interact with me throughout the presentation. So I normally give an extended period of an hour to an hour and 20 minutes. Rather than doing a 10-minute presentation and you know, having a Q&A, people engage with me throughout because they, they ask the questions throughout the sessions. Hmm. People have questions they need to ask you. Let them ask. Spend less time explaining to them and let them ask the questions. Some of those will keep you on the you know, edge. <laughs> and you have to be prepared to sometimes not be as transparent as you'd like. But you've got to be able to hear from your business what the pain points are. And you've got to be able to speak to them there and then in those forums and offer them those guidance and that input. So you've got to be accessible. That's first and foremost. The next thing is, is then how do we drive out the strategy across those regions? Because if you look at GDPR, for example, although it's impacting all the regions, each region has its own supervisory authority. So it's being able to understand the nuance in region. That takes a lot of research and a lot of my time. And I have to end up spending time to understand where the, you know, the likes of the German Workers' Council, all those sorts of things, where they matter. You have to be able to relate to your business in that regard. Yeah. So it's not just about security, it's the culture.
0: How would the message differ from the one that you're providing to the employees to the levels above you, such as C-suite and board level? All right. When you get to,
1: if you're fortunate enough, to get FaceTime with your board, you have to tailor your message. It depends on what your objective is. If you're about to ask them for a few million in investment, you have to be very clear about why you're asking and the justification. FaceTime with a board level is a rare thing. You have to optimize it, you have to go in, you have to be militarial in how you structure your content and what you're going to ask them for. The other thing is that these individuals are extraordinarily busy people, they have limited time with you. So whilst you've got that limited time, be clear that what you get in front of them adds value to both of you. It can't be a one-sided conversation. So be clear before you go in. Every time I've gone into the board, I've had to practice and rehearse weeks in advance to get to the point where I know that what I'm going to position with them will achieve my needs within the short time span that I have. What you can't practice for is the questions that come back from your board. (laughs) Alright, that's that's more challenging. But you have to ensure that your language to the board. And I found that the, the easiest way, and this has never failed me, is stories. You know, these are not individuals who get your subject matter. And if you speak technical to them, not only will they glaze over, it's rare that they get it. If you do have the rare individual who can. They normally take you aside anywhere and have sidebar conversations with you. But most of them are not technically proficient and, and the subject of cybersecurity and information security overwhelms people. They find it quite intimidating. Well, that's been my experience. So what I tend to find is I've learned over the years to have stories. And if you're able to provide analogies and stories to the board, there has to be a balance of course. You can't be patronizing. But that goes a long way to being able to help them understand why some of these things, even though it's beyond their comprehension, there are people that do this. Mm. There are people who will gain from this. Good old-fashioned greed is alive and well. You know, And they will continue to come after you. And there is no such thing as, I'm not important enough.
0: So, yeah. So you and I will understand the benefits of, of security and, and having a budget and being able to build out the department for the future of the business. But why does the business still see you as a a fawn fawn in their side?
1: So this goes a long way to being able to communicate to your business what security does, who security is, and what security owns. right? And there, you know, in our own industry, we tend to assume that our business understands and gets Security, for example, the three lines of defense. If you talk three lines of defense to a business, they, they stare at you horrified. <laughs> it's, it's not. We cannot, in security, assume that our business understands what we do. You have to be clear with your business. It's part to play. If you're going to drive, for example, a, a risk-based approach in a business, don't assume that your business understands that it owns the risk. It's been my experience, more often than not, that a business doesn't get a risk-based approach, what it gets is that security identified the risk, therefore security owns the risk. And security is always saying no. Well, actually, security shouldn't be saying no. What security should be doing is saying, you know what, here's the risk. I'm not comfortable saying no, but you need to understand the acceptable risk position. Are you willing to sign it off? They have to understand they own the risk and why they own the risk. right? And that's part of the education and the awareness training. If you don't explain that security doesn't own the risk, that security you know, actually shouldn't be saying no, and let me be clear, and I've been clear with my business in, in various organizations, nine times out of ten if I own sign-off, they'd never get anything done. Right. It, it's not the reality. The business needs to learn what security's model is. They have to understand what a risk-based approach means. And I don't mean you have to go into lengthy diatribe about this. I mean, be succinct. Explain to them that you don't own as a security individual, it's your responsibility to explain to your business how the model works. And honestly, every time I've done this, it's been a light bulb moment for some of my key business leads when they realize they are accountable for the risk. Don't produce races and the like, certainly to justify your position, the information is there. Sit down with your business leads, explain to them how this works, get them on board with a risk-based approach, and I can assure you, It does give you a lot more work when people follow your process properly. It will give you a lot more work, but you will be doing it properly. And your Mm. business will engage with you properly. So I believe in this case, whether we like it or not, the onus is on the security organization to help its business understand what security owns and doesn't own. And if there is a perception that security is a thorn in the side, you have to get to the bottom of why that is and clear it up. Because it shouldn't be the
0: case. How do you convince a company to increase their budget in security?
1: With great difficulty. Um,
0: sorry, I'm being <laughs> flippant.
1: Yeah. You you need to do this in a phased approach. If you've got, it depends on the maturity of your organisation, in my opinion. Right? If you have a very mature organisation in security, its security culture is mature, its security practices are mature. This conversation is less difficult. Hmm. And, and normally regulated environments are better at that. They get the spend. They've done it before. It's part of their budget DNA, so to speak, and also their cultural DNA. But if you get traditionally non-regulated companies who have not invested in security in the past and have paid you know sort of a cursory part of the the IT infrastructure pot has got some security in it, this is a challenging conversation to have. You can, you know, we, we've tried as an industry to grow up in the, in the last few years and use less stick and more carrots, so to speak, but you have to take a, a phased approach to getting your investment budget if there's been a lack of investment in the past. I would say you have to focus on your critical gaps. Everybody talks about the basics. Well, okay, if the basics are really important to you, explain to the board and those individuals who are going to release the funds why you need those basics. So the message has to be succinct, it has to be clear, and it can't be technical. Right? If your board is the one who's signing off your investment budget, stay away from technical. You understand that the technology is there and it will support you, but you have to have the conversation on their terms. Otherwise, there's no empathy, they can't relate to you, and they will, in a way, subconsciously resent spending that money. You're not earning them money by that. So what you have to try and convince them about is why this money will save them in the long term. So speak the language of the business. Look at what their annual reports say. Look at what those objectives say for the next 12 to 18 months. And align yourself with that with the budget. Try and speak that language. Justify what that spend is going to support and leverage that strategic roadmap for the business. It's one area of doing it. But it is a challenge because each board is different, each company is different, and the maturity baselines are different. But honestly, if there's one piece of counsel I can offer in this is that you make sure you speak the language of the individuals you're trying to convince to spend the money.
0: You just mentioned road map there. Mm. Do you, when you're going into these meetings, are you thinking to deliver the short-term message or the long-term message? It
1: depends on the priorities, right? So try and, try and nuance it that depending on the critical path that you have, if you've got a specific critical path where you have an immediate position that you have to remediate against, that's fairly straightforward. Normally that's driven by a high level of risk, and getting that sorted is not a problem. The strategic game that's the more challenging one, okay? Um, you, you have to talk the business through the journey, and you've got to be clear about why this is not going to be a five-minute position. Take GDPR, for example. To remediate that in a company this size or any major corporate is not a two-year exercise. In some cases, it's a three- to five-year long-term exercise. Mm. Right, But you have to set those expectations from the outset. So I'm not sure that answered your question.
0: <laughs> no, of course. It was always going to be a difficult question, but I'm trying to understand how, how you would think going into that room before that board meeting. So would you consider individuals in the room in terms of who may be on your side who you could you know what motivates each individual in that in that room would you would you consider I, honestly
1: that's pretty much how I do go in so mm. I tell you people who are invaluable executive assistants and PAs they help you right? Their, their, their ears are to the ground they understand the politics of a company they understand their bosses better than anybody could Get them on your side. Get to understand your board members. If you do, not everybody has this opportunity. I've been very fortunate my CIO is on the board. So I do get FaceTime. It's a rare privilege and not one I'm going to ever take for granted, I assure you. But get to understand your board. Get to understand what the priorities are for the company's strategy. You have to be aligned with the corporate strategy. Sure, security has one side of that. But the moment you can actually get relatability... The moment the board can actually see how you're going to help them on their long game, you've got your foot in the door. All right. It's it's less difficult to do that, but it takes time. It takes research, and you've got to be you've got to be calculating about it. You can't wing it. I I can't. I can't speak for anybody else, but I certainly can't.
0: So, what I still struggle to get my head around sometimes, sure. and, and I'm sure you do as well. With all the breaches, the fines, the publicity that cybersecurity gets, why, why is the culture, and this can be employees, this could be you know, board level, any organization, why are, they, why are they still struggling to adjust and have you got any solutions to get around this and progress?
1: And there are times when I wish I did cultural and social anthropology to be <laughs> able to answer questions like this. Um, I don't have all the answers i can give you my perception and it is mine all right so my view on this is why do you, despite all you know the information we have out there and the hyperbolic media going mad on breaches and that why is it still a problem first of all because not everybody believes security is their problem most people believe it's mine
0: hmm.
1: all right as the head of security there is a there is you know an attitude at times where well This is your job. This is what you're here to do. I mean, I'll give you an example. I won't tell you which company, but, you know, I had an individual who inadvertently, um, his actions resulted in us having a malware situation. And um, when he was approached, why he did what he did, he was extraordinarily defensive. And his defense was, well, if you put the right technology in place, then I wouldn't have been able to do it. So if you did your job, it wouldn't have happened. Mm. So why am I being held to account for something that you didn't do? Now, that's an extreme reaction, obviously, but it does give you insight into the mindset of of quite a few end users. Security on their personal devices is their problem. In a corporate environment, it's mine. So we still have a long way to go to, to get people on board that it is part of their job and it is part of, their accountability, not just mine. There is also a sense of denial. This will never happen to me. You know, so human behavior, being what it is, I mean, I'm sure there are better people. There, are, I know there are better people, more qualified than me, who can give you insight into the human behavior and, and the human psyche and why they take, you know, the the attitudes and positions they do. But we also have, you know, an onset of fatigue in this area. People are hearing it all the time and. They eventually just think, well, no matter what I do, it's going to happen. Mm. You know, so if I can't do anything, what's the point in you know, following protocols and controls if they're just going to get in, if they're going to breach us? So that it's multifaceted. There's no one single answer to this, I believe. But ultimately, it comes down to human behavior. And we're all built differently.
0: Going back to being in that room with the senior executives of a company, When they leave the room, or you leave the room, however it happens, Mm -hmm. what do you want them to feel or or take away from that that time with you?
1: What I want them to feel is confident that their CISO or head of cyber defense knows what she's doing and is taking every step and every measure possible to protect this company Mm. with regards to that. But more than anything, when I walk away, I want them to be in that frame of mind, or at least in the knowing, that I am accessible enough that if ever they thought twice about something, they would pick up the phone and call me. I would love my board to just have a direct line with me, rather than going through my CIO or the like. I'd love for them to be able to engage with me on a one-to-one basis more frequently, and to feel comfortable doing that, rather than just ad hoc, once every two months, I present my report, etc., Honestly, when I walk away, I wish I had a more proactive engagement with them, and that they felt comfortable doing that with me, rather than only seeing me when something's going wrong, mm. or when I need money, yeah. um, or when I have to present a report to them that they need updates on. So yeah, it's pretty self-serving as a desire, but yeah, I would rather that there was more open communication. But more often than not, I'm just I'm very happy when I walk away and I get positive feedback that they were reassured that the money will be approved, etc. So what is success to you? Oh, in this industry, that's elusive. (laughs) Um, The measure of success for me, this is going to sound really soft and fluffy, but honestly, the measure of success for me would be the day I have a culture, a security culture in an organization where people get security that they don't have an issue engaging with us that they see the value but then I have a security culture that adopts security as part of its daily operations without even thinking twice you know where we have people in you know on our engagements with standing up new projects where we see the increase in the volume of that engagement exponential then I know people are on board with what we're doing when I you know, do town halls, and people ask me hundreds of questions and aren't reticent. But honestly, the measure of success for me is is a security culture mm. in a business where they're not intimidated, they're not considering us a thorn in the side. Yeah, it's an ambition.
0: It's one that I'm sure can be met over in many years.
1: Yeah, uh, it'll take time. Of course. You know? It's not going to happen overnight. Um, We have a long way to go as an industry still, and I don't believe that this job is ever going to be done because the constant evolving nature of the threats that we deal with is what it is. And we've got generations coming up through the ranks who have different attitudes towards security. Honestly, I believe there are better attitudes to security than our generation has. By that, I mean mine. Um, So there's a lot of hope out there. But we do, you know... We continue to move forward with adopting technologies without consideration for the impact of those technologies on our day-to-day lives. IoT, obviously giving everybody a lot of pause. Mm. Um, Yeah. It's a fantastic industry. I love being in it. I really do enjoy my job. And I do enjoy, I I guess as the CISO, one of the things that I enjoy the most is that my job is involved beyond just the technology into the people. And it's that Hybridization. I love being able to do road shows and speak about security to the business. And I enjoy that people are taking more time now to engage with us. But yeah, have a long way to go.
0: Now, we finish every podcast with 10 quick fire questions.
1: Really? Yes. Okay.
0: <clears throat> so I'm going to just go in and start. You ready? I, I am, I think. <laughs> go for it. So, what turns you on professionally?
1: What turns me on professionally? Oh, God, I don't know. What an odd question. Turns me on professionally. An approved budget. Yes. Oh, that's so sad. To the <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> to the opposite. What turns <laughs> you off professionally?
1: Oh, um, apathetic engagement. Whether it's from you know technology or the business. Just apathetic engagement. Somebody who just honestly believes they don't have a part to play in this
0: now you're going to love this question mm-hmm. how do you unwind <laughs>
1: okay I do love this question because I can answer this but I will be judged I'm sure um, I read comics I've been reading comic books superhero comics since I was seven I am a huge fan of Marvel and DC I have a massive collection um, so I read comic books
0: excellent I really want to come <laughs> back face, to that no just, it's just not what you expect you did say <laughs> no, that apparently not I love that though what profession other than your own would you like to try
1: oh what profession would I like to try other than my own I would love to be able to be an author
0: what activity gives you the most energy
1: oh when I have the opportunity working out, gym, weights
0: who is your biggest inspiration my biggest inspiration
1: this is going to sound
0: My mum. I thought you might say that. Mm. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject?
1: Accessibility.
0: You're at your best when you are doing what?
1: I'm at my best when I'm doing something. When I'm on my own reading. Comic books? More often than not, yes.
0: If today was the last day of your life, Mm -hmm. what one lesson would you impart? Love yourself. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say is the reason he is letting you through the gates?
1: You did the best based on who you are.
0: Excellent. That's a great answer. So who is your favourite superhero?
1: Why does everybody always ask me that one? I think
0: that's (laughs) that's got to be the obvious next lesson.
1: I don't have a favorite. It's too difficult. Really? I've never had a favorite. It's it's always difficult. You know, I I've been reading these stories since I was seven. To have a favorite, no. I mean, you know, in the DC universe, there can only be one, really. It's Batman.
0: Right. Of
1: course. Um, in the Marvel universe, it's less clear cut for me. Okay. Never have I had a favorite.
0: What?
1: I know that you seem disappointed with that.
0: No, well, you know, we got one answer, we got Batman, so that's something to go off. Um,
1: And don't ask me if I do cosplay, because the answer is no, (laughs) because that's always the next one to come up,
0: no. No, that was not where my thought was going. Just to finish, Mm -hmm. where do you want security to go? We talked about success, but where do you want security to go, not just for yourself, but for, you know, for globally, really?
1: So I've used this before, and I'll use it again, so that if ever it gets used ubiquitously, people know it came from me. I want security to be a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. And, and let me expand on that. What I mean is, since everybody engages with technology all the time through their devices, I want people to be able to adopt security throughout their life, whether they're at home or at work, in the same manner. There should be no, no split between how you treat your work and your, your personal security. And I want it to be at the forefront of people's behavior when they do things. That's where I'd like to see us going. You know, I want people to understand their part to play in this at a personal level. And that means starting with how you, you care about your banking application. Why would you be less involved in your emails at work or the apps that we give you here? You know, it's just, yeah, I want it to be a lifestyle choice. I want it to be in curriculums. I want it to be, um, you know, a natural part of the the training that everybody does when they get onboarded in companies. And I don't mean tick box exercises. I want security awareness programs at major corporations to not be a ad hoc exercise, but to be an ongoing activity throughout the year, where your security teams are accessible to your business, um, even if it's a you know, you have your own PR security team to handle all the ad hoc questions that come through. So yeah, I'd like security to just be less of a dirty word.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.